Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, the program that brings you together with Christian ministry leaders, authors, and pastors, people who are working on major issues of our day. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and I really thank you for joining us today as we seek to encourage and equip followers of Jesus Christ to show His heart and mind in all that we do. We have a little bit different program today. We have a special guest who's a West Point graduate who served in Afghanistan and Iraq and who has worked on issues relating to military preparedness uh, for most of his adult life. Jim Pennyman Morin is a, as I mentioned, West Point graduate. Uh, He was there, a battalion commander, president of the Military Ethics Forum. He played rugby. A very interesting person, and I appreciate his perspective and insights as we get into talking about some of the issues facing our military, particularly dealing with the warming planet and the strife and complexity that it brings into our world. This program is brought to you through donations. We'd ask you to consider donating to Hill Country Institute. You can do that at hillcountryinstitute.org or by calling 512 680 7993. That's 512-680-7993. The website also features audio and video from our past conferences and seminars on many faith and culture topics, the works of C.S. Lewis, and much more. Now let's welcome our special guest, Jim Penniman Morin. Thank you for being with us today, Jim, and thank you for your service to our country. So the selection process and program uh, that you're it participated in, were part of, to be at West Point. Uh, it's very rigorous. Why? Uh, what led you to go that path? Well, so it's it's something I'd always wanted to do, Larry. Um, as a young man, my uh, my grandfather, uh, maternal grandfather, was a uh, career army officer and a uh, nuclear scientist. Actually, my mother was born in Los Alamos, and for a long time, my grandfather was one of the experts in the world on the blast effects of nuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs wow. in particular. That's a real piece of history. Yeah, and and it obviously, as you'd expect, had a profound effect on him and made him a bit of a pacifist, mm-hmm. and or at least gave. And, and he was also very much a person of faith, and kind of left me as a very young man with a a feeling like I needed to do something to make the world a more peaceful place. Mm-hmm. And when I was in high school in the 90s, um, you know, with Bosnia going on and then later Kosovo, you know, I looked around and I saw the people who were really doing things for world peace was the U.S. Army, yeah. keeping, you know, the the Croats and Serbs and, and Bosniak Muslims from killing each other. Uh, and that just for someone who was looking for a life of service as well as maybe some adventure – you know, that, that really uh, appealed to me. And sure. so, yeah, I, oh, you know, I, I was very targeted throughout high school and make sure I was an Eagle Scout and, you know, checking, got varsity letters in football and wrestling, all the boxes I thought I needed to check in order to get into the academy. So It takes was, a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, so yeah. I was you know, pretty excited when I sure. really got in there. Well, um, uh, you talked about the, the Army bringing peace. I know at, at one base, the over the entrance, it says our profession is peace. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a great recognition of the reality of, mm-hmm. of what a fighting force is there for. Yeah, I think yeah. it gets lost yeah. sometimes in the Avenger movies and things like that, you know, just how mm-hmm. much um, our professional military is motivated by bringing safety and security, not just to Americans, but to, to the whole world. And, they you know, they recognize that 
They have an abilities and we as a country have, have a, a power mm-hmm. that no one else has mm-hmm. um, and we'll either use it for good or, or we won't use it. Yeah. And uh, that's, a, you know, like any kind of power, you know, that's, that's a responsibility. And mm-hmm. it's something that it's a role we've played for decades now. And, and I like to think that's made a big difference in, you know, comparing the history of this century to the, you know, 100 years ago. Yeah, or just, just as the First World War was ending, you know, yeah. what that was like. So, mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, West Point must have been an interesting experience. What, what, when you think back on it now, you know, several years later, what, what stands out? Well, a little more than several years later, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, well, almost 20 years now, actually. Okay. So, uh, you know, it was just, you know, such a wonderful collection of people, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone there is, is, has that same kind of goal in mind, right? They want to have a, an exceptional life. They want to serve by and large especially at, at west point compared to the other academies it's about leadership right we don't mm-hmm. have cool planes to fly like the navy or the air force and um <laughs> but you you really go there because you want to be a leader of men and women on important missions and so um yeah that's the thing that will always stand out and, and what makes those those connections sure. so so close you know well, while you were there you were mm-hmm. a battalion commander. Mm-hmm. You were uh, in charge of the, uh, or you're president of the Military Ethics Forum. Mm-hmm. And you started a leadership uh, bit online, didn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was early days yeah. of the internet, relatively speaking. And, uh-huh. and again, because everyone's there to learn about leadership. And you're, you're, it's, it's set up to be a leadership laboratory, right? Mm-hmm. And so everyone's, people are kind of aware of the fourth class system and how the, the freshmen, or we call them plebes, get, yeah. you know, uh, treated uh, strictly. You know, but that's all designed to be this this four step plan to creating someone who, as a 22 year old, is ready to go out and lead 40 to 50 soldiers, you know, in combat, and that that doesn't happen overnight. And so sure. you have increasing levels of of mm-hmm. responsibility. And I thought it would be great to have a publication where we could trade shop, talk shop, trade ideas on on leadership because mm-hmm. so much time as cadets you just you really do spend thinking about how I could be a better leader talking with your friends about it in a way that you know um even as an as an attorney now I I don't sense that same professional quest for excellence mm-hmm. in in like the day-to-day practice of their of our trade mm-hmm. you know like people people who seek out military leadership roles really care about it and they want to be the best at it Sure, and it, and it's evident from the outside. You mm-hmm. see it. You see it in people mm-hmm. that rise up in the ranks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where where did you go after after you graduated from West Point? Where, where were so, you? So stationed? I um I went first through the uh, infantry officer basic course in, in Ranger School, uh, and then became a platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, which is America's last uh, paratrooper division. Uh, that's stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, and they have a great history. Yes, sure like do. D-Day and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so then, then you uh, you went into areas of combat. Where did, where did you go? And tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so I, I graduated West Point in June two thousand one. So uh, you know that that profession uh, became pretty interesting pretty quick. Uh, that September, I was an infantry officer again. You know, kind of seeking out that that. What I at the time I guess I would have thought of as the ultimate leadership challenge, and, and I don't think I was wrong about that. Uh, and so, uh, so we naturally um, we deployed to um, Afghanistan in two, 2003. We were in the the third wave in Afghanistan, 
and then a few months after that, the war in Iraq started. Um, the following year, so January 2004, my unit, we were actually, um, we had returned from Afghanistan in, in August and we're at the battalion Christmas party. And as we all know, the, the planning and, and the things in Iraq didn't unfold the way that we had hoped yeah. uh, as a country. And so we realized that we had to stay longer. And so we were, <laughs> she told the battalion Christmas party that we needed to deploy to Iraq in two weeks to, to help fill in some gaps, but just for a few months. So it was a fairly, relative to what my most of my peers have, have gone through, a fairly mm-hmm. short deployment. Mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes, and, I, and looking at your at your CV, uh, uh, you were a parachutist, you know, mm-hmm. the airborne. Uh, you, uh, it says you received a bronze star. Mm-hmm. You were a platoon leader. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were intimately involved there with the same things you had learned. Yeah, to do yeah, and, point, I, and I was you? well yeah. prepared for it. Um, but yeah, so we, as a rifle platoon leader, there's about 50 soldiers in a rifle platoon. We include attachments. So like we usually had two female military police soldiers with us. Because mm-hmm. you go into an Afghan village to search for weapons of the enemy, you need to be able to search the, the people in the village. Yeah. And, and, of course, there's a, a lot of sensitivity in, in the Muslim world, mm-hmm. and really everywhere, about mm-hmm. people with guns coming in your house searching for things. Right. So we always – this is, of course, before women were allowed in the, the infantry proper. Mm-hmm. So we would always have a couple of female MPs with us. And so that's – you know. Um, it's a really designated duty that they had. That, yeah, yeah, a very yeah, special duty. Yeah, and so uh, women have been on the front lines for a long time in, in that respect. And, and in a way that I think was really important and understanding where um, people were in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, understanding their faith and respecting it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think any any as a person of faith myself, yeah. I recognize how important my faith is to me and and if if you want to convince these people in Afghanistan and Iraq that you're there to help, which we really were, yeah. you know, you, you have to be able to live that out in your day-to-day actions. So kind of honor them in, yeah. their, in their ways. Yeah, exactly. Sure, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then, you you know, when you you went to Georgetown University Law Center, I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I, I, as much as I, you know, enjoyed my time in service, I had – Actually, my, my second daughter was born uh, the week I came back from Iraq mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of started to think with the two kids at that point, um, just it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Yeah. And so I was transferred to the Army Ceremonial Unit at uh, Arlington Cemetery, or specifically Fort Myer, the Old Guard, mm-hmm. and did ceremonies there um, for, for three years while going to the law school at night. So it was a great way to transition, but also just a really great way to honor um, both in funerals or honor cemetery, but also like the inauguration of, of uh, President Bush, his second inaugural, and I was yeah. the head usher for President Ford's state funeral. And it was just such a special way to sure. just say goodbye to the Army in a yeah. way. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You, you had a, a sense of the history and the, and the legacy, mm-hmm. and you, you, you got to see that for, yeah. for a good bit of time. There. Yeah, you realize just how much— uh, you know, any any preachers listening to your program will know just how much mm-hmm. um, it means to a family if you help them say goodbye to their loved one. Yeah. You know, whether they're whether they're an eighteen year old kid who was killed in Iraq or you know mm-hmm. a ninety year old World War II veteran. That's just such a, a privilege to have a, a part in that role. Yeah, you know, it's honoring. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, Jim, we, we've we've talked before the program about 
the many issues that the military faces. And one of, one of the ones that I'm very concerned about and Hill Country Institute's concerned about is, is the environment in general mm-hmm. and specifically a warming planet and, mm-hmm. and the issues uh, that it uh, leads to. Mm-hmm. So uh, is the military taking climate change seriously now? Yes, and, and has been for quite some time. Um, you know, in the military, we learn to identify threats, right? And you, you do the best research you can to identify what, what, what is the future going to look like, mm-hmm. right? So what are your, your um, Billy Mitchell in the 20s thinking about what bombers could become and, and predicting Pearl Harbor 20 years in advance? Yeah. You know, we have brilliant minds dedicated to that. And... Um, Actually, I learned recently that the first warning on climate change and the potential consequences that was delivered up through the military came from the Pentagon to President Lyndon Johnson. Wow. And the first starting to, to realize that the concentrations of, of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases were starting to build in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a basic scientific fact that, that those gases hold heat more than oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so when that balance starts to change, it is a natural pr- – consequence. And then anyone who studied insurgencies, and that was kind of my specialty at West Point. It was my major. It was, it was military history. You weren't an insurgent student. You were a... Yeah, yeah. You, know, you were a yeah, student. Yeah, as opposed to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> other schools in the other decades. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was studying insurgency from, I guess, the other side of it, yeah. uh, the shorter-haired side. Uh-huh. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, so that was that was really my major, which is also kind of a racket because you just get to read all the books you'd want to read anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a fun thing to major in, or at least a in, very interesting thing. It became yeah. more relevant than quicker than I'd expected at the time. But uh, you know, I did a, uh, my thesis was about a revolution in Quebec that happened in the 1830s, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that started that was a drought oh, and yeah. a famine, and you you start looking around at other wars, particularly unanticipated wars, like the French Revolution, very much precipitated by a drought that caused a famine, that caused a shortage of bread. And, you know, everyone knows Marie Antoinette's unfortunate, you know, I don't know if it was a joke or or, or just a very ill-informed comment about eating cake, Yeah, you know, but, but yeah. that got people mad. And, uh, you know, we saw that again in Syria just 10 years ago where there was a drought and um, you know, unanticipated harsh weather that led to food shortages that led to people to take to the streets and, and started the civil war that is still ongoing. Well, social, social instability follows food shortages, drought, heat, loss of farmland, all these things Absolutely. tied together. And those are uh, things that, that the military is always thinking about. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a security issue. Right, because you have to kind of anticipate where tomorrow's threats are going to be so that you can do what you can to be prepared for them, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's that's training linguists in that, that language um, or having prepositioned uh, materials mm-hmm. in, in that country um, or, you know, the, or just having the basic plans about how you logistically get thousands of, of men and women and, and hundreds or thousands of vehicles mm-hmm. to some place you know, fast enough to deal with it. And that's, yeah. uh, there's a saying in the army uh, that uh, professionals, uh, amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. And, and so that, that advanced planning is, is a core tenet of, of what makes our military very strong. Sure. Yeah. Uh, when I think of, of movement, uh, 
uh, I think of the the Wehrmacht, the the German mm-hmm. army in World War II, and and how they were so far advanced, mm-hmm. and um, the French they were lined up in their line, and the Germans hit mm-hmm. at one point, and it was logistics that really yeah. made the difference. Yeah, it? It, people don't realize that the French army in 1940 hit every goal that they had set for themselves. Every timeline was met. Their plan, they, they exactly executed their plan, but it was a plan that was based off of, you know, facts 20 years old. Yeah, there were one more too late. Exactly. They, yeah. You know, they refought World War I perfectly mm-hmm. and therefore lost World War II or lost, you know, their country within, yeah. within a month because yeah. the world had changed and they had failed to adapt to it. And so every military planner is very familiar with that story mm-hmm. and spends their life thinking about it, anticipating how can, how can our army avoid a similar fate. Sure. Okay. So you, you were in, personally in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, I think of those places being hot and mm-hmm. dry. Okay. Yeah, and and uh, and they're getting hotter and drier too. Yes. I mean that's the that's the mm-hmm. trend. So, what did you personally observe there? Because I want to kind of lay things out. You know, that mm-hmm. that's a region. Let's think about that region, mm-hmm. and then let's think about the world. You know, what are some of the issues that that we're facing? As we have a, a warming planet, we have sea level rise, we have all these things going on. So, what are what are some that stand out in your mind? Here's the thing that stands out most to me in that that time and in those places, which I often think about as like my master's degree in reality, you know, mm-hmm. is the thing that always stands out is just how similar Afghans and Iraqis were to us and that the main goal in their lives was to raise their children well mm-hmm. and to um, to take care of them. And when they couldn't, that's when they started looking for extremist ideologies and and you know, to use a more American phrase, listening yeah. to, to snake oil salesmen, mm-hmm. right? Like the like the Taliban. And uh, I remember that first my first mission actually in Afghanistan. We, we did a patrol up to the border with Pakistan, where there'd been a lot of violence, and the, the Taliban was still active, even though it was early 2003, and they had largely been crushed in the original invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we had this whole convoy of vehicles and helicopters overhead to provide security. And in that convoy was thousands of humanitarian daily rations, which is like a big uh, MRE, mm-hmm. you know, that will feed a person for a whole day. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Afghanistan at the time was the pro- poorest country in the world and had the child's mo- highest child mortality rate. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, especially uh, for me, as a, uh, I had a six-month-old my first at the time so but so we had all these these thousands of dollars worth of food and trucks and we're we're sharing these with the the villagers in a way to to show that we were there to help us have school supplies things like that and afghans have a have a a code called pashtun vali which is which is basically the, the pashtun way of living and it's extremely important to them and part of that is hospitality and so when you come into a village they invite you to tea. And so the, the officers uh, would sit down to tea with the village elders, and these people who are largely starving will somehow scrape together some cookies and some milk, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to, to make uh, a milk tea, shudu chai. And, and so we, we were asking, trying to engage in a, in a dialogue and help them understand why we were there. You know, they hadn't gotten the newspapers about 9-11, as you might expect, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, explain why we're there, how we're there to help. And, and we asked him, what can we do to help you? And this this old Afghan uh, village elder with this long white beard, I just remember him stroking it, and he says, 
you know, we would like a mating pair of American goats. And um, even we kind of chuckled about it at the time, but realized, like, yeah, he's just asking, you know, for you to yeah. teach him how to fish rather than giving him right. a fish for the day because that's what they do is raise, sure. raise goats in that you yeah. know, very arid region. looks a lot like West Texas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that that's something I always really take away from me that, you know, how important it is to make people's lives more livable. And so when you start thinking about climate change and how it's going to change assumptions about what can be grown in what place and, you know, may wash away people's farms entirely or like those Afghan villages largely um, – it, it's a climate a lot like, say, like Utah, mm-hmm. right, where you're going to have glacial melt providing water throughout the year yeah. that can make a, you know – a a subsistence living mm-hmm. very much the same way it has for thousands of years. It's a, it's a fascinating thing to go to an Afghan village and, and see a manger that will look exactly like the one Jesus was laid into. Wow. You know? Yeah. But just with a few Subarus and machine guns thrown in. Otherwise, it's like, <laughs> that's it, right? It's, it's, I don't think things haven't changed. The nativity scenes I've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know? But, but every, yeah. so much of else about their life is. And, and you know, that, that, that glacier goes away. Mm-hmm. That's... That's catastrophic. Yeah. And then you add on top of that that um, their neighbors may not be keen on sharing with them, mm-hmm. especially if they're also under stress. And, you know, we often – one of the challenges is the American military has, particularly in Afghanistan, is that, you know, you'll get shot at for one village and you'll go over there and ask who shot at you or try and investigate. And they'll say, no, 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 that wasn't us. That was those guys of the next village. Those guys can't be trusted. And you go to them and they would tell you the same thing about that village. And you just realize you'd find yourself in wow. a 2,000-year-old family feud, mm-hmm. you know, and, and trying to navigate that is, is tricky. But it's relevant to this topic in that, like, people, when, the, when their life is hard already, don't like sharing. Yeah. And, you know. And they were in a basis of subsistence. I mean, they, they had a very low level of income, livelihood, and losing, Extremely. Yeah, yeah. and losing glacier melt yeah. means they're losing their source of water. And that's right. happening around the world. Right. It's in India and, and other places, even Los Angeles, you yeah. know, places exactly. that are losing uh, the glacier melt because the glaciers are melting faster or they don't have as much snow coming into them or, or right. whatever. Right. So that's a worldwide issue. Right. So you lose that runoff, you know, in in, De- in Colorado, well, you, you go get a job at, at Steamboat Springs and, you know, maybe in, in leaving ranching, I'm not, I don't think that's a late thing, right? It's, yeah. it's people pick, take their livelihood and often their family's livelihood very seriously, but we have other options. Mm-hmm. But in these other countries, you know, that's, that's not far from a given. Yeah. Uh, even as hard as it is. For, for an American, I said, lose it, change their livelihood. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, you've got heat increasing. You've got drought increasing. You've got glacier melt diminishing. What else What else is happening climate change-wise that has a military or security consideration? Well, you, you also, of course, have sea level rise, okay. which people um, often forget is, is both a function of the ice caps melting, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. just more water in the sea, but mm-hmm. also hot water is slightly larger than cool water. So if you think about Superstorm Sandy and what it did to, to New York and New Jersey, yeah. um, you know, very, very robust cities that, you know, have uh, been built over the last two centuries and are kind of built on the assumption that water level is going to be what it's going to be. Yeah. And the water level in New York has changed almost a foot 
yeah. since you know that city just in the last century. And so you look at a country like um, like Bangladesh, one of the most populous, one of the most densely populated countries mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. almost all of which is in a river delta, and up to seventy percent of that country can lose their land um, with, uh, I think, a three lef- three foot level sea rise. And Bangladesh is a little bit like that village in Afghanistan where their neighbors don't like them. Yeah, you know, it's surrounded by India. India has built a barbed wire, you know, machine gun armed fence all the way around it um, to, you know, and, and they're thinking, which is not without reason, uh, protecting themselves against potential Muslim terrorists. And of course, Burma and, you know, the Rohingya who've, who've been really brutally suppressed in the last few years, but also really for the last century, those are Bangladeshi immigrants that were brought there to help work on the British railroads. And yeah. so, you know, you have this, this really horrific potential situation in the next few decades where Bangladesh has less land, just as many or more people, um, and those people have nowhere to go. And human beings are resilient, and people will do what they have to do to take care of their kids, and that means they will try and find a way. Sure. And that's, to, to me, probably the, the most likely near-term conflict like large violent conflict that you know we, we're just gonna have to have to recognize as a as a possibility and, and start thinking about what what we can do to to prevent it well on on that bright and cheery note <laughs> uh, we're getting close to time for a break so um jim let's hold that thought we'll come back i think i think bangladesh and and sea level rise are issues that we can continue to talk about it's time for a brief break We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to past programs, which are also available on your podcast app as Hill Country Institute Live. We also ask you to consider supporting this program financially, since the radio stations like to be paid for the airtime. Please visit hillcountryinstitute.org to make donations and let us know if you'd like to sponsor this program on your local radio station. You can reach us at 512-680-680. 7993. That's 512-680-7993 or donate online at org. Thank you for being with us and we'll be right back. <laughs> 